wish it was snow. I'm just curious, anybody buy a season pass to Mount Ashland this year? Just curious. Anyone? We have a smart church. (laughs) Bunch of prophets in here, I guess. I don't know. Man, we came close. I mean close. Good thing we're broke. Hey, um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13. I have a couple of announcements for you. Um, Doug, is Doug here? Doug Gardner? Doug? I don't see him. He's probably around here somewhere. Tonight, I was told, I think maybe someone else will know. I think it's at 6 o'clock at South Medford High School. Um, There's a meeting, kind of a valley-wide, it's a multi-church effort um, in light of a lot of the result of the strike recently with the school board, the education, all that kind of stuff, they're actually having sort of a prayer meeting to just get a bunch of people together to just pray for healing and kind of, you know, hug it out, I guess you'd say, and kind of move forward. So um, just want to let you guys know that that's available. It's tonight at South Medford High School. I think it's at 6. I'm pretty sure. Get on Facebook or something. Somebody will know. But um, just wanted to let you guys know that that's out there. Um, we also have another bit of news This is a little, um, not that that's not a big deal, but a little more applicable and kind of a big deal um, here to our church. Um, one of the things that, that you know if you've been around for any length of time, and I've definitely learned um, with regards to being in the, this role of ministry, is that um, nothing's ever the same. There's always changes, there's always transitions, there's always seasons like that. And uh, about a week ago, Pastor Ed DeVries, who's been overseeing our children's ministry, but also been kind of the admin pastor for our church, he basically makes sure the bills get paid, makes sure the insurance is in order, um, just really takes care of so many of the details of the church that allow us to do what we do. Um, He said he's been feeling for a long time, for quite a while anyway, that, um, that God was calling him back into the workforce. And he'd been wrestling with that for a long time and, um, and just kind of made the decision about a week ago to resign from his position as pastor here um, and make that move, which is a really scary transition in a lot of ways. Um, it's one that can be tricky because we can, within the church, look at something like that as like a step down spiritually. You know what I mean? But you're better taught than that. Amen? Amen? That we know that wherever we are, we are ministers of the gospel everywhere we go. And and I'm here to tell you right now that Pastor Ed stepping down from this particular position, he's able to do this with his head held high and with no shame whatsoever because Ed has given an immense amount of time, energy, and talent over the last, gosh, Ed, I don't know, almost four years now, something like that, and has made this church markedly better by having him here. Markedly better. He has. Um, um, I, I just wanted to share with you guys just a few of the things really quickly um, that Pastor Ed has done that you may not even be aware of that the church has been blessed by. Um, one of them is he has completely transformed our children's ministry. Um, we went from kids crammed into closets, <laughs> essentially, um, to moving into the hub over there and organizing all these rooms. And, and even at that, Ed had already started on some plans. If you've been around some of those rooms, you know they're already full. And he'd already started looking into some options on, on where we're going to go the next step for us to be able to tend all of that. He has secured our church through a lot of different policies and procedures, even things with regards to insurance, things that I tend to be one of those guys, I don't think in those sorts of terms, just, oh yeah, let's do it. And Ed was always the guy who would come along and say, actually, that would be a really bad idea for us, and here's why. And so he was a very helpful break for me in a lot of areas because I tend to be all gas, if that makes sense. That sounds bad, but you know what I mean? (laughs) 
Ed's probably like, no, he's, yeah. Um, so, so a lot of things with regards to insurance, policies, um, tightening the, the security in our children's ministry. Um, we've never had incident with children's under his watch, and the policies that he's put in place should ensure that we don't have incidents regarding children's safety moving forward. We're very thankful for that. He built all this, just so you guys know, Metro. You know what I'm saying? Like, look at this stuff. Ed, Ed not only came up with the kind of stage design, he built all these things. The furniture in our kids' wing, those sign-in tables that you guys sign in on, um, we couldn't find stuff to buy that didn't cost a billion dollars. And so Ed was just like, forget it, I'm going to build them. Saved the church a ton of money and then built all of those things himself. Um, he organized and ran our Children's Harvest Festival every year, which has just gotten huge, actually. And is a great success. And because Ed was in the administrative role and just kind of overseeing the finances and the management and paying the bills and even in his shrewd ability to shop and be able to look for things that save money in a lot of different areas, um, Ed has actually doubled the church's savings account in the last calendar year through his management of money here for the church. And so we are deeply grateful, Ed, for your time. I know I saw you walk in a minute ago, but there he goes. We are deeply grateful, Ed, for everything that you do. I am eternally grateful. Um, like I, I told Ed this week, a lot of people work all week looking forward to the opportunity to be able to get together with their friends on the weekend. And for me, it was the reverse. I got to work with my friend every day, um, and it was just a blast. We have a really open office thing, and we would just yell and joke, and it was just, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I'm just really thankful for everything that you've done, Ed. And I also want to say, um, also on behalf of all of us, beyond just the thank you for that, um, thank you. We, we owe great thanks to Sarah and to the kids. Because I can tell you from personal experience that families tend, it's a difficult thing for a family to feel like they have to share their dad with a large congregation of people in that sort of pastoral role. It can be really difficult. And they've had to make a lot of sacrifices behind the scenes to free Ed up to be able to do what he does. So we are eternally grateful. The church is going to stand with Ed and Sarah and help them in this transition. And can I just say straight up, Ed might be one of the most gifted across the board guys that I've ever met or seen in my life. So if, you're, if you've got, you know, if you're a businessman, you've got a company, something like that, I'm, seriously, I encourage you. Faithful, hardworking, dependable, and crazy gifted. So get a hold of our boy. Edward, thank you. And again, can we just say thank you again for everything you've done, Ed? Yeah. And if you really want to bless Ed when the, when the service is over today, give him a hug. He loves hugs. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right, let's move on to, uh, I did that without a tear. So let's move on to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, shall we? What? What? My breath is coffee. I just had to deal with it. I'm sorry. You can't smell it, but I can taste it. So um, first I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 8, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go forward. So beginning in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. 
Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Let's pray. Father, we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. I pray, God, Lord, that your spirit would even come upon me, Lord, and just guide even the words that come from my mouth. Because, Lord, we don't need the convention or wisdom of men. Lord, we need your heart. We need your word. We need your wisdom. And so, Lord, we pray that you would pour it out liberally upon your people this morning. That you would teach us, comfort us, convict us, change us. And I pray, God, that we would walk out of this place looking more like you, Jesus, than when we came in. So, Lord, to that end, we pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our King, our Rock, our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Now, how many people have been, like, looking forward to 1 Corinthians 13? Because, I mean, let's face it, we've dealt with some stuff over the last year, right? From sexual immorality, I mean, the gamut. And I don't, for a lot of us, this has been the case for me, that going down the road, 1 Corinthians 13 was like, oh, come on, baby, get here, quick. We want chapter 13, because I'm tired of talking about lust and divorce and all that kind of stuff. Let's just get to something where we can all just go, oh, Because that's the feeling we get with this chapter, right? Right? Doesn't 1 Corinthians 13 invoke warm, fuzzy, Julie Andrews spinning on a mountain kind of feelings in all of us? Isn't that what we think of when we get to 1 Corinthians 13? Say it with me. That's what it is. How many people, just curious, have something in your home with something from 1 Corinthians 13 stenciled or cross-stitched or some other thing like in there like love is patient, you have like on a pillow or it's on a frame or, you know, something like that. Maybe, maybe you're like get the uber Christian Valentine's Day cards and it's got stuff like that. And you send those out. Like this is honestly um, probably the most well-known passage in all of Scripture. Even people that don't even know where it comes from have heard this passage because everybody's been to a wedding at some point, right? And this is like required for an American wedding. You can't even do it. Like they'll stop the service and you forgot something. First Corinthians 13. Really well-known passage. I actually even Googled 1 Corinthians 13. Just typed in 1 Corinthians 13, Google images, just to see what would come up. What are the images that are invoked by 1 Corinthians 13? I have three of them. Our top three choices are on the board. Take a look right here. Let's go. Image number one. Oh, say it with me. Oh, isn't that precious? Isn't that precious? Girls, don't you wish your guy was sensitive enough he'd send you that? Post that on your Insta. Some of you guys are like, no, I want a man. Good. We're going to fix that in just a minute. Just work with me. Love suffers. That's really precious. That's sweet. What's the next one? Oh, that looks like a Valentine's Day box of chocolates right there. And then what's the third one? Okay, that's just dumb. (laughs) I mean, that's just... That's just cheesy. That's just silly. Um, but that's, all of those are very typical. If you were to go home and Google 1 Corinthians 13 and look at images, it's all stuff like this and kittens and puppies and all of that kind of stuff. That's what our, get, get that out of here. That's all our perception of what 1 Corinthians 13 looks like. Now, if 1 Corinthians 13 was a passage that was given to us all by itself, 
that stuff would be totally fine. The problem is, well, what's the first three rules of real estate? Location, location, location. And 1 Corinthians 13 has a very specific location. We'll say sometimes here, what are the first three rules in biblical interpretation? Context, context, context. And 1 Corinthians 13 is given to us in a specific context. It has been placed strategically and purposefully after 1 Corinthians 1 through 12 and before 1 Corinthians 14 through 16. So it doesn't come on its own. And like I've said before, some of you guys may not know this, but when these letters were written, they didn't come with verse numbers. We added those. They didn't come with chapter breaks. We added those. They didn't come with punctuation. Interpreters added those. When the first letter of 1 Corinthians was written, it was one solid block of letters, of words, of sentences, all put together. And 1 Corinthians 13 comes right in the middle of that. It is impossible for us to accurately understand what 1 Corinthians 13 says when it has been divorced from its context. You have to understand what comes before it, what comes after, and consider the text in that place. Because when we do, we understand this is not a warm fuzzy. This is an indictment against the church in Corinth. So today is kind of a big picture day. I like doing those from time to time. Every once in a while, it's good to have a big picture day. And we're going to do this. So I want to revisit with you the story of 1 Corinthians, the context of this passage, and then bring it back to the first three verses of this particular chapter. And I think that you'll suddenly see this in a very different way. And then we're going to realize this isn't so much a warm, fuzzy letter, though it does have those truths in them. It's a giant warning to the church. And so this, play, this takes place in the city of Corinth. Corinth, I have a map here. Can we put up the picture of Corinth here? I have been waiting to use this laser tool for you cannot imagine how long, right? <clears throat> Bam. <laughs> how cool is that? All right. <clears throat> I may just use this. <clears throat> excuse me. If someone falls asleep, I'm going to be like, no, I wouldn't do that. We got an eye doctor in the audience and he would be very upset with me. Um, so this is, Cor- this is Greece. This area right here is Greece. And Corinth was a real city that where this particular church existed. The letter of 1 Corinthians was written to the church in Greece. And Corinth, in case you can't tell, see if I can hold it still enough, is right about right, right up there. That's Corinth, okay? That's the city of Corinth that this letter was written to. Now, Corinth, it's important to understand, is placed, the city of Corinth is on an isthmus. That's what that little bitty strip of land right there is called. And at its, at its point, right where Corinth is, it's only four miles wide. From one ocean to the other ocean is only four miles. Very, very short strip of land right there. Now, this was incredibly important and beneficial to the city because here's what this means. Everyone who lived anywhere here in southern Greece that wanted to make their way either into the northern Grecian areas or to Athens, which is, you know, the well-known, the big city, they had no choice but to make their way through Corinth. It was the only route. Therefore, Corinth became a cash cow. Corinth became a really, really important place of commerce. It's like when you're opening a business, location, 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 right? So if you're opening a gas station, then you want to be at the intersections of main roads. You want to be placed where people have to come by you. And in Corinth, anyone traveling from southern Greece to northern Greece or to Athens had to go through Corinth. So it's a very strategic place to make money. 
but not just on the roads, not just land travel, but anyone in ship, anyone traveling by boat ended up going through Corinth. And that's weird to think about. How would a boat end up having to go through a city? But here's the deal. This peninsula right here was incredibly dangerous for ships to go around. In fact, going around these points right here, they were so wrecked with wind and storms that it was an incredibly treacherous time. It even still is to this day if you don't have the right vessel to go around there. High winds, big storms, not a safe place. You Bible students, you know the story of Paul. Remember when he gets in the shipwreck and then gets bit by the snake, all that thing? That happened when he was taking a ship around this peninsula. And so here's what people ended up doing. They created a road that went straight across that isthmus. It's really hard to hold this thing steady. Um, A road right there that crossed that isthmus. It was called the Diolcos. And it was a four-mile trench or road. And what they would do is there was ports on each side of that. And so if you were in a ship and you're coming from the Aegean Sea over into the Ionian or the Adriatic Sea, your ship would pull in right there at that port. Everything would get offloaded, put onto carts and things like that, and they would drive it across that road, the four miles, to the other port on the other side where another ship would be waiting. At that point, they would take everything that had been offloaded, load it onto these new ships, and they would send it on its way from there. It was a shortcut, and it was a way around. So the city of Corinth had incredible location. It is literally at the crossroads of every shipping lane and every road that had anything to do with Greece. Big money area. And so it was a prosperous city and it was going really, really well until in 146 BC, Corinth was completely destroyed by the Romans. When they invaded Greece and took down that power, they completely leveled Corinth and the place was left totally barren, empty. No one was there for some period of a hundred years. Not a soul was there until a guy about 50 years before Jesus Christ comes on the scene, a guy who many of you are very familiar with, or you at least know his name, Julius Caesar came into power. And Julius Caesar was a smart dude. And he knew the history of Corinth and he saw the trade route advantages and he wasn't ashamed to make a little money. So he decided, we need to rebuild Corinth. There is money just sitting there waiting for us. So he plants a Roman garrison there, and then they begin to rebuild the city of Corinth. And what's unbelievable, the city of Corinth, in a 100-year period, went from zero people to one of the largest cities in the world. That's never happened. There's nothing's happened like that before. Just grew immensely that fast, just like that. And it was a unique place because that means you have no native, no, no native people, no native uh, you know, history that's still continuing on. It was literally a clean slate when they started the city over. And so people moved there from all over the place. It was a brand new plant. And the city, as it grew, it grew very, very densely populated. And the reason was, not only is it only, it's only on a four mile wide uh, isthmus, so it's it's not like there's a lot of space, but also, can we see the next slide? The city of Corinth is right up against what's referred to as the Acro-Corinth. We got the next slide up there? There we go. See this mountain right here? That's referred to, it's named the Acro-Corinth. It's this huge mountain that extends up 1,883 feet above sea level, which is a giant mountain considering the ocean's right there. And so the city of Corinth is tucked right up against this mountain and then on this tiny little four-mile strip. 
So what you end up with is a densely populated group of people with backgrounds from all over the world. Every different tribe, every different tongue, you name it, people from all over. And they all came to Corinth for one reason, to make it. They came to Corinth to get wealthy, to build a business, to build an empire. That's what the entire city was founded on. So people just literally move into this densely populated city and it becomes this dog-eat-dog kind of city. Do whatever you got to make it your own way. And it became the most carnal city you can imagine. In fact, they even had a phrase that was called to Corinthianize. It was a word that was created. It was a verb and it meant to live with no moral integrity whatsoever. Someone who has been Corinthianized, this was their term in their day, was someone who has said, I'm I'm gonna take all the moral rules and all the moral restraints and I'm gonna set them all aside. I am here to live for me. I'm about me. I'm here to make it. And the city became incredibly carnal. And one of the reasons as well, it wasn't just carnal in a business sense, excuse me, it was very carnal um, sexual immorality everywhere. And one of the main reasons is that on top of that mountain right there, there was a temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the Grecian goddess of love. I'm good, that's not gonna help me, but thank you so much, man. Um, I'm just gonna, and I'll be fine. So, um, Right up there on top of that mountain was this temple that was for the Grecian goddess of Aphrodite. And part of the worship of this, they would call it love, we would definitely call it lust. There were thousand, a minimum of a thousand temple prostitutes. And people would go up the mountain to worship. That was what that was called. And then every night, this is the ruins, by the way, of the temple. Every night, the, 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 the prostitutes that were up there would make their way down into the city every night, and then they would do what they do down in the city. So this, this city becomes this densely populated uh, uh, group of people who are go-getters, who are there to succeed, who are living in a place of total moral depravity, and they're all there for one reason, self. That's why they're there. They're there to make money. They're there to enjoy the lusts of life and make it. That's the reason that they're all there. Now, meanwhile, elsewhere, there's this guy named Paul. The Apostle Paul that we know well. You guys can take that down now. The Apostle Paul was a guy who previously had been a Jewish rabbi. And when Christianity began to rise, he recognized Christianity as, in his opinion, a false religion and a threat to the Jewish way. And so he made it his mission to take Christians down, to eliminate the threat. And he was literally leading the charge of the murder and imprisonment of hundreds of Christians. In fact, the Bible tells us he was on his way to Damascus to do that very thing, to go into the city of Damascus and take down some Christians when Jesus showed up in front of him and took him down. Paul is literally and figuratively knocked off of his high horse and realizes that Jesus Christ has in fact risen from the dead, that he is the living God, the true king, and his life's forever changed. And he goes from the principal uh, persecutor of Christianity to really, we might say, the leader of the church. Now, he goes on to write half of the New Testament But much of the New Testament, the the letters that he did write, they are just that. They're letters written to churches that he planted because Paul became what's referred to as a pioneer missionary. A pioneer missionary is someone who would go from one place to the next and plant churches in new locales. That's where the word pioneer comes in. 
So Paul's mission, this was his, his ambition. He talks about it in Romans. <clears throat> Paul started in Jerusalem and wanted to make his way all the way up to Rome. And he wanted to plant a church in every urban center along the way. So he would go into places like Philippi. He would go into Ephesus and he would plant a church in these cities. He would raise up pastors, raise up leaders, get them going, and then he would bounce. He would go off to the next city and start another one. And he would leave that church in that city with the responsibility of reaching out and ministering to the people in that locale. So this is what Paul's doing. And along the way, he comes to Corinth, this city full of driven carnal, I mean, so carnal that they have a word named after themselves, Corinthianizers. And in Acts chapter 18, when Paul comes into Corinth, we catch Paul at an absolute low point in his life. He's completely discouraged. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he writes back to them and he talks about the fact that he was despairing even of life. He was just done, just done. They're not listening. Everywhere I go, I get beaten. He had gone to Athens and thought he was going to have this amazing success there, and they just pretty much blew him off. He goes to Philippi, and he was beaten to within an inch of his life, and he's just discouraged. He's feeling like, what's the point of all this? Is this going anywhere? And now he comes into Corinth, the most carnal city of all of them, and there's some limited success, but looking at what's going on there, it's just Ugh, and Paul's completely discouraged to the point he's like, I don't even want to live anymore, is what he says. And in Acts 18, 9, we see part of where Jesus or God comes to him and speaks to him. And he says, Paul, keep preaching the gospel. Keep speaking the good news. I'm not done with you. And I'm doing something. In fact, I'm going to do something that's going to show you how powerful this gospel message is, that this isn't just futility that you're out there doing, that this is real and this is important because I'm gonna convert the people you would last think would ever bow their knee before me. I'm gonna get the Corinthianizers and they're gonna get Christianized. And so Paul plants this church there and the church begins to grow and Paul leaves. Now, remember this. You've got this group of people here when he creates this church this absolutely carnal city. Take out of your mind any image that Paul rolled up into Corinth and found the 20 or 30 holy people, brought them in, and that became his church. It's not true at all. He had the gnarliest, we're talking experienced sinners. That's who started this church. And you see this when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, do you not know That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither will the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and some of you were. That's what he says. He names this list, homosexuals and drunkards and thieves and all these people. And then he says, and such were some of you before you were washed by Jesus Christ. He says, remember all those guys out there that you see? That that was you. This was not like the who's who of Christianity. This was the power of the gospel coming in and changing the lives of experienced sinners. Like big time, front page level, experienced sinners. And so that's who creates the first church there in Corinth. This group of people that were incredibly gnarly, but gifted. Incredibly gifted. 
I mean, think about it. This city's really young. It's created for the express purpose of making money, and it had no native population. So everyone that was there came there for one reason, to make it. So that city filled quickly with really, really gifted people. History talks about the the knowledge that people had, the philosophers, the sophists, the architects, the buildings, the artists. There were incredibly gifted people. They were gnarly as the day is long, but they were skilled and they were gifted and they were amazing. And so that's the people that come into the church. High gifts, high issues make up the Corinthian church. And so these group, of, these group of people come in. They start the church. And so inside the church, you have people with incredible gifts of articulation, as we'll see in verse 1. You have people with tremendous gifts of knowledge, we'll see in verse 2. You have people with tremendous drive, unbelievable like that, indomitable spirit, you'll see in verse 3. And then also beyond these, which would seem like natural, maybe you might even try to write them off as character traits, you even see that there are incredible supernatural gifts that are being exercised and practiced within the church. Because remember in chapter 12, right before that, he's talking to them, hey, in your church, you've got prophets, there's healings, there's all these things going on for the purpose of edifying and building up your church. So this church was incredibly gifted, incredibly skilled, incredibly driven, incredibly motivated. And then Paul comes in in 1 Corinthians 13, and he throws in this passage about love. He's got a list of gifts in 12. He had a list of sins in 6. But then in chapter 13 comes this list of love, and he says things like, love is patient and kind, does not envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude, doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable. Now think about this. Let's talk about the context. Why does Paul write this? Because don't for a second think that Paul's writing his letter to the Corinthians. You bunch of sinners, you need to knock this off and divorce and all that. (gasps) Look at the puppy walking by. (sighs) Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not. It's not like he had an intermission of sweetness. He wasn't writing this stuff and then thought, oh, you know what? I forgot to describe love when I was there before. Let me just throw that in. There's a purpose for that. Now, if you go back, and I really encourage you, anytime we're going through these books, you know, we spend kind of a long season in these, and as time goes on, we can forget this. I encourage you guys regularly, go back and read the whole book. It'll take you like an hour to read the book of 1 Corinthians. Go back and read through it, and read it carefully, because here's what you'll find if you pay close attention. This list of things that Paul describes as characteristics of love, Paul has already dealt with those things in the negative with regards to their church. He's already called them out in previous chapters for ways in which they were being unloving. So for example, in chapter 8, Paul hammers the Corinthian church for being puffed up and proud. And then he comes in in verse 4 of chapter 13 and says, love doesn't boast, love's not arrogant. In chapter 10, Paul said that they were self-seeking. And then he comes in in verse 5 of chapter 13 and says, love doesn't seek out its own way. In chapter 7, Paul called them rude. He said, you are behaving rudely to your own spouse, to your own wife. And then he comes in and says, love is not rude. 
all of these things that we look at as like, man, this is Paul's exact dissertation and definition of love. It's actually an indictment against the church in Corinth for ways in which they were behaving unlovingly. And he's saying, he's, well, he, even, he ends chapter 12, I will show you a more excellent way. You've been this way, but look, love's not rude. Love doesn't boast. This is what this is. Because the church that had the most gifts, maybe the most gifted church in the entire New Testament, also had the most division, had the most immorality, had the most moral laxity, had the most pride, the most self-seeking ambition, the most gifted church was the most troubled church. Warning. And then if you go on, you realize, 1 Corinthians 13, it's not so much a mushy love tale as it is a scathing rebuke. Now, in the next few weeks, we're going to go through these different things. We're going to spend some time in this chapter because there's things in there that we assume but don't really understand or do. We're going we're to do some work. But today, we're going to look specifically only at these first three verses to make really one incredibly important point. Because when Paul comes in and writes these verses, he drops an atom bomb in the gifted church of Corinth. An absolute massive bombshell. And the statement that he makes in verses 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians 13 is this. Hey, gifted church. Hey, intellectual church. Hey, unbelievable minister. Listen, you can do amazing things and not even be a Christian. Take a look. Verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. In these three verses, he says, you can be the best preacher ever and you can be nothing. He says, you can speak in the tongues of angels. You can be eloquent and speak or speak supernaturally even in the tongues of angels and be nothing. You can understand scripture. You can understand mysteries. You can have more knowledge than we've ever seen and be nothing. You can be a person of incredible faith. Nothing deters you and yet nothing. You can be the most generous person on earth and be nothing. You can perform miracles and be nothing. Note the language. He doesn't say, look, you can be an incredible preacher, but your speech will amount to nothing. What he says is, you can be an incredible speaker and yet you be nothing. I'm not talking about the task, he's talking about the person. Not the action, but the actor. And the message that he's getting across to this incredibly gifted church is this giftedness does not equal godliness. Giftedness is not even an indicator of godliness. Now, we've seen this before. I mean, think back, if you would, to the book of Exodus, those of you that know the story where Moses comes before Pharaoh, let my people go, the plagues, you've seen the movie. So when Moses comes before Pharaoh, what's the first thing he does? He has his staff, he throws it on the ground, it turns into a snake. He picks up the snake, it turns back into a staff. 
He goes to the Nile River, turns the Nile River into blood. But the part that we tend to forget or maybe gloss over is that Pharaoh calls his magicians in, doesn't he? And he says to his magicians, can you do what he just did? And the book of Exodus says that they were empowered by their secret arts. And they do it. They throw down a stick, it turns into a snake. Moses' snake eats it, but still, impressive, right? They turn water into blood. They're able to duplicate. Look, Satan, obviously, nowhere close to power with regards to God, but still a powerful, powerful copycat. A powerful counterfeiter. And so he's able to do that. Those are miraculous things. Look, look what Moses just did. He can do it too. They must be one and the same. God says, "Uh uh-uh. Now you can go away, but that's different because he was empowered by Satan. But you know what? The Bible also tells us that sometimes God is the one who empowers someone who is not a follower of God to do his work. There's a guy in the Old Testament named Balaam. Three times in the passage it says he's a wicked man. And he goes to try to pronounce curse on the people of Israel, but God overtakes him and he just keeps speaking blessing. Not a follower of Jesus, but God is using him to do his work. You can see examples with men like Saul, but really the best example is Judas. Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, one of the 12 who followed Jesus, um, is the best example of this. Because in Matthew chapter 10, it says in verse 1, and he, speaking of Jesus, called him his 12, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. So in Matthew 10, 1, he calls his disciples together and he gives them the power to go do amazing, miraculous stuff. Authority over demons, the ability to heal. They did just amazing stuff in Jesus' name. Who gave them the power? Jesus did. Who received the power? The disciples did. Who's one of the disciples? Judas is. So here's Judas doing amazing, miraculous things under the power of the Spirit of God. But over and over in Scripture, we see his heart was far from him. He's going to betray Jesus, sell him out. And and not even the miraculous part of things. I mean, there's the story where the woman comes in and she pours out that really expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. And Judas is standing over here and he gets all indignant on it. And he's like, what is she doing? We could have sold that perfume and had tons of money to go and feed the poor. Well, that sounds really like a spiritual thing. That sounds like a wise thing to do. Could have fed a ton of people with that. But the scripture says he was actually doing it because he wanted to pilfer that money. His heart wasn't it, but it looked really Christian. It looked like a disciple. It looked like he might be doing what God would have him to do. And yet the entire time his heart was not there. Unless something amazing happens between the the stories that we have in Scripture of Judas and the time that he actually kills himself, don't look for him in heaven. But he was empowered, and he was gifted, and he was a leader. So we see this again. I, I bring this passage up all the time, but Matthew 7. We're there in that last day. Jesus says people will come to him, and they'll say, Lord, Lord. We cast out demons. We did miracles in your name. And he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. Giftedness, miraculous works, those things are not the same as godliness. If that's still in your mind, please forever break that connection. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, the brilliant Jonathan Edwards once said this. 
Gifts are like precious jewels from which a body may be adorned, but they do not alter the body's form. This is what he said. Giftedness can make the outside of a person look incredibly good, but they don't change the heart. They don't change what's going on on the inside. They can pretty up the outside, but they don't change. And you can even go back to the Pharisees in Jesus' day where Jesus said they're like whitewashed tombs, so polished and spiritual on the outside, but on the inside decaying and dying. And this is what Paul's saying here. He's saying, look, the gifts, the biggest gifts are not an indicator of godliness and you ought not make that connection and you ought definitely not become dependent on them. This text has application for three people, three different types of people that are in here. The first person is the active, ministering, gifted churchgoer here. It's really easy for those of you that are in those, if you're here, you're serving, you're leading, you're doing Bible studies, you're, you know, you're here all the time, you are a part of the family and you serve. It's real easy, it just is, for us to end up in a place where the message starts and we start kind of going, oh, I'm really good, I'm so glad he's talking about that because that guy right there needs to hear some of this. You know, but this week, you're that guy, all right? This message is written to the gifted leaders in the church of Corinth, the gifted people of Corinth. And the message he says to them is beware, beware, because we can fall in so easily into a trap of going, you know what, man, I'm serving, I'm exercising my gift, I'm here. And I'm, I'm pouring myself out. I'm doing all this stuff. And, and, and it's so easy for that to translate into our identity. That these external works and things that we're doing, we suddenly start making internal assumptions about the things going on in our heart based on them. It's so easy. It's so subtle. But it's so dangerous. And it, look, I'm, I'll be really open with you guys right now. We'll see if anyone's here next week. There have been times... In the past, we're, we're coming up on six years before long. There have been times, hopefully not many, but there have definitely been times when I've come here on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night to come up and teach the word where I've had sin issues going on in my heart that were unconfessed, and I knew it. You know what I mean? Like, I know it. You know it. God's like, are you going to deal with that? Are you going to deal with that? Are you going to deal with that? You know what I'm talking about, guys? And there's been times that I've had that. And in my prideful heart, wrestling with that, maybe unwilling to deal with an attitude thing that was going on. Maybe I've spoke poorly to my wife or whatever the case may be. And that I, I, there have been times, no doubt, that I have walked up these steps knowing that there was something going on. And then I come up here and I start to talk. And maybe it goes really well. Maybe it goes really well. I start to exercise my gift. And people are listening and they're laughing, tears, and they're repenting. Oh, Jesus. It's theoretical, sort of. <laughs> but here's what can happen. I can come up those steps knowing that I've got some soul issues that I need to work on. I can exercise my gift, and then I can walk back down those steps going, and I nailed that. And God really used me today. I'm somebody. I'm so, I have a gift. I have something to offer. That is so, that is such a subtle but massive temptation for those that have the privilege and the responsibility of teaching in front of a group of people because it is a wrestling match you will have your entire life. It's so subtle and it's so incredibly 
dangerous. Because here's the thing, that's not Christianity in the slightest. That's religion. That's I'll do something good that will outweigh the bad that I did before and I'm golden. And that is absolutely repulsive to the grace of God. And it is dangerous. And we're, we're all suspect to it. It happens all the time. Paul wrestled with it. All of us wrestle with this to start to believe, man, I'm, I'm worthy. And, and, and here's what Paul says. And Paul says to me, for example, in verse 1 of chapter 13. If I speak with the tongue of men and angels and I have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. It's just religion. You know what I used to think this meant? When I used to read this, I just thought that meant like annoying. You know what I mean? I mean, look, when, when a kid in your house is learning a new musical instrument, there's always a season of ugh, right? There just always is. But for the parent of the kid that plays the cymbals in the marching band, oh, you must have earplugs. I mean, that's just, how, is there anything more annoying than that noise all by itself? It's just a clash and it's loud. And I used to think that's what that is. And I could point to people that do that. Westboro Baptist Church, always in the news, this church pointing their finger at gay people, pointing their finger at soldiers, pointing their finger at everyone, condemning them to hell without one ounce of love in their voice. And I go, that is annoying. It is damnable. I wish somebody would stop putting them on TV because it's not a church. It's a cult. And there was a guy that used to come to our campus when I was in college. I've talked about him before, Reverend Birdsong. And he would come rolling up onto the campus at the lunch area where everybody would come. And he would just yell at people with a Bible in his hand. He would just yell at people and he would call people whores and sluts and every name in the book. And never saw anyone come to Jesus from that teaching. He was nothing. His ministry was nothing because there was no love in his heart. And so I used to, that's how I would read that. Man, I, I, need to, I need to be loving when I teach her. It's just this annoying, loud, clanging symbol. But context, context, context. And in the cultural context of this day, there was something Corinth was famous for. Corinth was famous for a metal alloy that was used to make symbols and gongs that they would use in their pagan worship services at the beginning of their services. They would walk in, they would bang these gongs and smash this stuff for the intent of getting the attention of the pagan god that they were worshiping. Do you see this? This is what Paul's saying. You're just like the pagans. You're coming in going, hey, God, look what I'm doing. I'm doing amazing stuff for you. And you're expecting that because of my performance, I showed up at the worship service, I came to the altar, I did the thing, and I'm getting your attention, don't miss this, and now bless me because I've been so spiritual. That's what Paul's saying. Like there is a trap that we, the gifted, if we can say that, people of heritage, the leaders, the ministers, those of you that teach Bible studies, those of you that lead things, where he can say, listen, don't do this. Don't let your identity get wrapped up in what you do because that's pagan. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity in the slightest. The second people that this speaks to is those who would consider themselves maybe ungifted 
Last week, remember, we talked about that tension, those who have superiority complexes and those who have inferiority complexes. And so so let's talk to the inferiority complex, the person that says, I I don't really have anything to offer. I I don't know what to do. They're more gifted than me, and my gift's not really that important. And, And I'm a little embarrassed even to exercise my gift because they do their gift better than I do my gift. And so I feel like I don't really have much of anything to offer. I don't really know what to do with this. You're doing the same thing. You're taking your worth and your identity based off of your gifts. And here's the amazing thing. In the context of this passage, what Paul's saying is that love is better than gifts. Love is better than the giftedness. Love is better than the miracles. And you may not be the kind of speaker that will get to stand up and speak in front of thousands of people. You may not get to be the worship leader that gets to put records out and have people buy them. You may not be able to do those things, but number one, that's worldly success, so be careful. And number two, Jesus even put aside gifts for the sake of love. Philippians says that Jesus, God himself, put aside the benefits of being God and humbled himself and became man, living like us to love, to show love to us. And so you might not be the most gifted speaker ever. You might not be the person who gets a lot of attention for your gifts. And there might be somebody right next to you that has the same gift as you and they seem better at it or more gifted in that gift than you. But look, Anyone in this room can be the most loving person that we know. Anyone in here can be loving. And Paul's saying that's infinitely more important than what you do. I mean, don't, don't the scriptures even say they will know you are Christians by your giftedness? No, by your love one for another. So don't think it's only a trap for the person who gets all the attention. Don't think it's only a trap for the person with the big gift. It's the same trap for you. And then the third person this is for is to the religious unbeliever. Because there's people in here that would say, I'm a good guy. I'm living a pretty good life. I'm a good person. I'm doing pretty good things. I'm all right. I've never killed anybody. Good. Good. That's good, right? That's not the standard. That would be quite the low bar, wouldn't it? (laughs) As long as you don't kill anybody, you're good. The the bad news that I have for you is is this. The idea of I'm a good guy, I'm a good person, I'm doing good things, man. I'll be fine. I'll get to go into heaven because that's where good people go. What you need to understand is heaven is for perfection. The standard for eternity with God, the bad news is perfection not murder or rape or the big ones. So for example, in chapter 13, when you go down this list on love, how you doing? Love is patient. Have you been patient always? Answer me. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Sorry, I can resist. Love is kind. Have you always been kind? Always? Love does not envy. You have never been jealous. Never. Lights out. Content. Love does not boast. You've never thumped your chest. Ever. Love is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. 
Boy, they if just start with that one and we don't even need to read the rest of the list, right? I mean, we just lost an hour of sleep last night. Let's be honest. You've never been irritable. You've always carried yourself with grace. Love believes all things. You always assume the best in others. Never jump to bad conclusions first. Love endures all things. You never back out. You give your word, you're there. You never let people down. How good are you if the standard's perfect? Not so much, right? Me too. Me too. The gifted, the ungifted, the truth of the matter is no one is good enough. Not one, but there's one person who is. There's one. His name is Jesus Christ. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ came to earth for the specific reason that he knew you have no chance. It's not that you don't do good enough. It's that you can't do good enough because you are fallen. We are fallen. We have a nature that guarantees we can't be good enough to achieve the perfection of heaven. And so Jesus, who was the most gifted of all time, chose to set his gifts aside, to set his special abilities, his special privileges as God himself, set those things aside and to come and humble himself to become just like us, to go through the same temptations, to go through the same frailties, to go through the same issues. The difference is, is he was lights out. Perfect every single time. Never proud, never boastful, never impatient. I mean, are you kidding me? The apostles? Incredibly patient. He did everything that we possibly, there's just no shot that we could do this. And he was perfectly loving all the time. In fact, the Bible says not only was he perfectly loving, he is love. And then he went to the cross. He was killed unjustly for our sin. The Bible says that as he hung upon the cross, that the penalty of our failures, all those things that we can't do right, the penalty and punishment for all of that was placed upon his shoulders and he carried them in love. I've heard it said before, nails didn't keep Jesus on the cross, love did. And he took the punishment and the pain and the shame and the guilt for all the times that we've blown it. And he died. The penalty for sin is death and separation for God, from God. He died and he was separated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out. But then on the third day, he rose again and he ascended into heaven where the scriptures tell us that now he is the advocate for his children. That he stands there and when the accuser says, Jeff isn't good enough, he says, he doesn't have to be because I am. Jeff blew it but I didn't, Jeff's good. Jeff ruined it again. Jeff screwed up again. Jeff lied again. Jeff had an attitude again. Covered, 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 covered. All of those, all the ones today and all the ones to come, covered. But he's not good enough to pull it off, doesn't matter. Has nothing to do with what I do. Has nothing to do with what I do. Has everything to do with the fact that Jesus Christ paid the once and for all penalty and he just says, just follow me. Follow me, those who will believe in who I am, those who will follow me in faith, those who will place their trust in me, repent from sins, and let me be the one 
Don't make your identity based off of the things that you do. Your identity is now forever cemented in what I did. You're a child of God. That's the beauty of the Christian faith. Let's all bow our heads. The scriptures say, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from former sins. Therefore, brothers, be diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to take opportunity right now just to worship God just for a moment. Sam's just going to lead us in one last song. And I just want to encourage you guys, man, make your calling and election sure. If you're one of those that you've been going to church forever and you've based your spirituality and your standing with God based on your attendance record or what you grew up with or how much you gave, what shows you watch and don't watch, all those sorts of things, You're no different than the pagans who try to get God's attention by good deeds. But we are saved by one thing and one thing only, and that is the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So I want you to make your calling and election sure. If the elders would mind, we'll go to the back this week. If you guys would would mind as we stand and sing, just making your way to the back. Huddle leaders, I'd invite you guys to be a part of that as well. And, And just look, if you're here, Just don't leave this place without being sure. Go talk to these guys. Say, I want to be sure. I want to repent for my sins. I want to be part of the kingdom of God. Just make sure. And if you're one of those like, man, you know what? I have totally been basing my identity lately on service and my gifts and those things. I need to return. Then go receive prayer. Let the brothers pray with you. That is a good thing. Humble yourself. Go back. Receive prayer and just say, Lord, thank you for this reminder from your word that I can return back to what is important. We'll get to the attributes of love later, but the attributes of love don't matter if we don't have the source of love that has transformed our very heart. Amen. So will you guys stand with me and take advantage of this time. Go to the back, receive Jesus.